Well, it's, uh, it's good to see all of you. If you're a guest, my name's David. I'm the pastor. And we're glad you're here. Hope you know you're always welcome to come and be a part of our church. We just appreciate you worshiping with us um, today. We're in uh, the tail end of a series that started the 1st of June. We'll go through next week entitled The Kingmaker. It's a series about a guy named Samuel. Uh, next week, we bring it to a conclusion. I'm going to talk about the legacy of Samuel and the legacy of life. And today, though, is really kind of the ultimate message of this series because this is the one that the title of the series pertains to. It's kind of where all the other messages have been pointing and leading to. Uh, it is about the day that Samuel anointed David to be the king. And it is a sermon entitled The Kingmaker from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, a little bit from Second Samuel chapter 7. And as we come to this message today, this is what I really want you to see from it. This is what I really want you to get out of this message. That in God, every life has purpose. And that purpose always involves Jesus. Now, you need to understand that in the world we live in today. That every life has purpose. But it's in Jesus. So I'm going to begin the message today talking about the fact that Samuel's life had a purpose. Now, here was Samuel, as we've seen throughout the series so far, this phenomenal man of God, one of the six key Old Testament figures, you know, the three major figures, Abraham, Moses, David. And I shared there were three transitional figures that matter, Joshua, Elijah, and, and Samuel. Samuel, we have seen that for decades served the people of God and served God as a prophet, a priest, and a judge. As a prophet, he spoke the mind of God. He brought the word of God, God's revelation of himself to people. He brought that to the people. As a priest, he performed uh, the sacrifices that would be necessary for the people of Israel to worship God. And as a judge, he just led them. I mean, he was the main guy for decades in the life of Israel. Now, we saw from the very first message that the world that which he came into it was the time of the judges. And the time of the judges, which had existed for a little over two, at least 200 years after Joshua had got him in the promised land, was a time of unbelievable chaos. It was a time of Israel being sinful, rebellious, all those things. I, I shared there were two fundamental things that were happening at the time. One was what we would call syncretism. It was a part of their culture. It's a part of our culture today where it's the blending of everything. They took the Canaanite religion and blended it and folded it into the worship of their faith, Yahweh, which God completely rejected. So they had corrupted that and become basically worshipers of Baal. So the other thing they did that was part of their culture, it's actually part of our culture too, is they practiced something called moral relativism. In other words, throughout the book of Judges, we see uh, the comment that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They just did whatever they wanted. Now, the reasoning for that in Judges is saying that there was no king, which is kind of pointing everything to where we're going to get today. When uh, we saw in the second message, when Samuel came forth into this world, uh, the priesthood of Israel was basically corrupt. And so in all of that, God decided to send someone, and he decided to send Samuel. And here's the key. Before Samuel ever came into this world, God had a plan for him. In fact, let me just say this. Before we know, because of the story, before Samuel was even conceived, God had a plan. You understand that what is true of Samuel is true of everyone, that before we are even conceived, before conception, God values and has a plan for life. Do you kind of understand the significance of that? I hope. And so Samuel comes into this world and he functions as the prophet and the priest and he functions as judge 
in the people. And he served them for decades, did a phenomenal job. But as he got older, the people began to understand that, that Samuel couldn't continue. One day, he was going to pass. And some of the older one guys remembered how life used to be in the time of the judges. They didn't want to go back to that. And no one should blame them. They were concerned about the future. But instead of just going to the prophet of God, their leader, and saying, hey, Samuel, can you give us any indication of what God's going to do next? They took things in their own hands. And they demanded a king, a king like the culture around them, the Canaanites. That's what they wanted. And that was a rebellious act towards God because they weren't willing to let God's prophet bring the word of God to them. And God's revelation. Now, with that in mind, God says, fine. Now, God already had a guy picked out. We said before, we're going to see that today, David. But God said, okay, I'll give you a guy. Like the culture around you. He gave him Saul. And Saul, as we saw last week, was a disaster. But he was like the king to the culture around him. Now, on two occasions, Samuel said to Saul, God has rejected you. Now, you're just, you're just not going to be the king anymore, Saul. Because you're not doing things the way God wants it done. An amazing thing about God is despite all of our rebellion, all the things that happen in our life, God always has the way of getting things done the way he wants it. And we're going to come to that story today because what God had planned was David. He allowed this little detour so Israel could learn a lesson. Then he's getting back to David. And so we pick up the story of the kingmaker in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? To mourn is to have grief. He said, how long are you going to grieve? And it's understandable that the prophet would do that. And at some point, Jesus, I mean, God says to him, listen, Samuel, enough of this. We've got to move forward. I have something else planned. And so he said, fill your horn with oil and go. Now, the horn and the oil was significant because, you know, the, the, the horn would be either a ram's horn or a, maybe a bull's horn, probably a ram's horn. And they would put oil in there. And there was really one purpose for that, to anoint or to set aside. And Samuel, it was going to anoint somebody. He really was going to anoint someone for one reason. That was to be king. So he said, go and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite because I have chosen a king for myself among his sons. Notice, he says, I've chosen a king for myself. Saul was for the people to be their king because that's what they wanted. Now he says, I the king that I want, and I have chosen him from Jesse's family. Now, uh, the word chosen has the idea of seeing and understanding and perceiving. God has seen and chosen David to be king. There again, probably before David was ever born, we would understand that God knew who was coming. He had chosen David, and so Samuel went. Now, verse 2, but Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Now, you understand, Saul's king. Now, twice Samuel had told Saul, you ain't going to be, you're going to be the king and you will die. Then your kingdom's not going to endure. You ain't going to be a king forever. You're going to come to an end. Your family's going to come to an end. God has rejected you. Now, Saul understood that if God was rejecting him, and also what Samuel had told him is he's already got someone else picked out. It's only a matter of time before Samuel anoints someone else to be king. So undoubtedly Saul is looking for this. And if, Jesse, and, if, and if he does this and goes to the house of Jesse, he's going to do, but he saw Samuel does this, Samuel's committed treason against Saul, and so he can have you know, Samuel put to death. Now, he can't kill him beforehand because this is the most beloved guy in the history of Israel since Moses. 
So he's not going to do anything to him. But if you know anything about Saul, and if you read the rest of 1 Samuel, you'll understand what an insecure and jealous and uh, devious person Saul really is. So Samuel says, I can't just go walking around with the horn of oil. Everybody knows what that means. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, this is one of those things that, that we just, we don't quite grasp because in the story of the Old Testament, this doesn't make sense to us. But in the book of Deuteronomy, there is a place there that talks about the fact that if there was a murder that was committed in a rural area and was unsolved, some priest had to sacrifice a heifer to atone for that. Now, this is kind of an obscure thing. So let me just give you this little insight. When you come to passages in the Old Testament that are really tough, and it refers, looks like, to something else, I can almost guarantee you, and it's statistically been proven at 94.45% of the time, it comes from either Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. I just made that number up, but it sounds good. <laughs> this comes from somewhere in Deuteronomy. I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say that this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21. It's not really a shot in the dark. I looked it up right before I brought the message, so that's where it comes from. So you're going to go, and it's going to look like you're going to this area to do this. And then you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll let you know what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me, for me, God, the one whom I designate to you. You're going to anoint. You're going to set aside the one I designate, the one I have chosen, the one that I have picked. So verse 4 says, Samuel did what the Lord told him. And he came to Bethlehem. Now, I love this part. Then the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? Now, as a judge and as the leader, Samuel traveled everywhere. And everybody loved to see Samuel. And all of a sudden, Samuel's showing up. And they're like, mm, we don't know why you're here. Well, they kind of were afraid because everybody knew that Saul had rejected as king. Everybody knew that Samuel had brought the message. And everybody knew that at some point, Samuel was going to have to anoint a new king. And they were terrified. And on top of that, they had, he had this calf with him. And, I mean, this heifer with him. I'm sorry, and they understood with the heifer there that, that that probably meant there was a death. There was all sorts of stuff going on. So do you come in peace? And he said, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated. God who is holy. The fundamental characteristic of God is he is holy. To be holy means to be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. That is God. He is separate from us. We are common, profane. We are in rebellion against God. And that which is common and profane cannot come into the presence of the Holy One. So in that day and age, when they were going to gather for some special occasion, they had to symbolically make themselves pure. It was a symbolic act, but it was important because it showed their dedication. So they had to consecrate themselves. In other words, this is a big deal what's about to happen. It's not just any old sacrifice. Something key is going to happen. So everybody get ready. And oh, by the way, Jesse, yeah, you bring your family. You get ready too. not going to tell you why, but just in case you come on. Verse 6. So Jesse's family, they entered, and he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is standing before, me, before him. This is, this is the oldest son. And later on, you know, he, he just, we see some positive things about him, and a fighter and a warrior. But this, this is the, the number one son of Jesse. Now, listen, if you, if you have any idea what's going on, 
And you know that there's the potential for Samuel to set aside a king. You're, you're going to bring your, your number one son, your eldest. I am the eldest in my family. From my mom and dad's marriage, divorce, they all got remarried, had more kids. When all is said and done, number one right here. I'm the eldest, smartest, the best looking son. All of the things you can imagine and you want in a number one son. Without the humility, I am at. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. In other words, you're looking at all the physical things. He might make a great warrior, but that's not, I've rejected him. Now, rejected doesn't mean he's rejected him as a person, but it means as the potential king. this, This is not the guy. Notice how important this is. For God does not see as man sees. That is such a key phrase. How much better off our life would be if we understood that God doesn't see things the way we see things. We want him to. We think he should. We pray that way. God, I need you to do things the way I want you to. We need to understand in life that fundamental to who we are, we need to see things the way God sees things. We will always be better off if we see things the way God sees things. Since man looks at the outward appearance... But the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at here. Now, the heart for us usually is a place of emotion. You know, I, you know, I, met, I met my wife and you know, Debbie, and we grew up in 45 something years ago. We were, you know, however old we were 45 years ago. And we dated and I fell in love with her. And I said, I love you with all my heart. Now, that's not what the word heart means. The, the word heart speaks for us of emotion. For them, the emotions came from the stomach. And so I would tell Debbie today, baby, I, I love you with all of my stomach. Please fix me something to eat. <laughs> but I, and, and see, here's the thing. I have a big stomach. That's a lot of love. You skinny guys don't really know how to live your li- life the way us bigger guys do. Right there, brother. <laughs> Gonna get some amen from somebody. But it was the place of the decision. It was the place of the real you, who you were. It was the inner person. Now, verse 8, 9, and 10 he brings six more sons. He's got a seven total. Ain't nothing working. So we come to verse 11. Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the boys? I love that part. Some of you have the NIV and New Living Translation with those others. This is all your sons. This is all your boys. This, this, they're in the south, man. They're in the southern part, maybe even the Texas part. You know, that's what we, these are all your boys. You go to a man, you know, 50-something-year-old son. He goes, this is my boy. He's 50-something. You know, that's how we talk. Just all the boys you got. And he said, the youngest is still left, but behold, he is tending the sheep. Now, the youngest doesn't just mean he's the youngest in terms of age. It means he's the least experienced. That he hasn't gotten to a place in life where Jesse would bring him before Samuel. Now, understanding that Jesse's not a dumb man and, uh, and that he understands that something's going on. He has seven sons older than David who are at least more experienced. And, and of the, all of them, the youngest, who's with the sheep, he's not experienced to do what he has an idea Samuel's going to want him to do. Samuel said to Jesse anyways, you send word and bring him, for we will not take our places at the table till he comes here. So they go get David, and in verse 12, here's what happens. 
They sent word, brought him in. He was reddish, with beautiful eyes, and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now, it seems strange. He had red hair, and he, and he was just good looking. And it seems strange because previously, God had just said, I don't look at the outward appearance. But that doesn't mean that just because he looks at the heart, that there is no value at all. I mean, this, what he was saying is this, David has a great heart. The heart to follow me. He's also going to be the type of person that people want to follow. He's just going to—he's just going to be this guy. Now later on, you know, we see David and, he, and, and all the things that happen. This kind of makes a little sense. But you know, I want you to do this. I want you to anoint him. And that, it, this is the thing. In just a few words, we almost just read over. It. Okay, he's going to anoint David, and we just need to stop for a second because in this little sentence, these little few words in the Hebrew. God tells you Samuel to do something that's going to change the course of human history. Not only will it change the course of the history of Israel, but because of who David is and pointing to the Messiah, which is Jesus, and who Jesus is in the, in the midst of the world today, these words and this act changes the course of human history. It's a big deal. Verse 13, so Samuel, he took the horn of oil, and anointed him in the middle of all his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Now, the word Spirit of the, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is capitalized. Some of your most versions have it capitalized. We tend to think oh, it's the Holy Spirit, and, and technically we would look at it from Jesus backwards, yes, but they didn't have a concept of the Holy Spirit. But what was important is, is this meant the presence of God. The word rush speaks of power. The NIV and the NLT will say it was a powerful coming upon him. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, and we would say now upon every Christian, when the Holy Spirit comes upon your life, he is there permanently. He abides in a permanent way. But back in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God came, it wasn't permanent. He came and he left. He came and he left, except here. This is significant. He came upon David permanently. And the Spirit of God never left him. He had the presence and the power of God all his life. The rest of 1 Samuel is the story of the conflict between Saul and David. Saul dies. Get to 2 Samuel. David's king. There's a little bit of a civil war. All works out. You get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and by now David is the most powerful king in that part of the world. If you look at the biblical world, you look at Israel, Egypt, the area of the Assyrians, the area of the Babylonians, Mesopotamia in that world, David is it. He's the greatest king Israel will ever have. He is the man. And he loves God with everything. There's no question in his life, no matter what his sin would become, that he ever loved God. And he wanted to build a temple to worship God so that the Ark of the Covenant could go there, the presence of God. But God sent Nathan to David and said, you know, David, I appreciate this, but you're not the guy to build that place. I didn't ask for it, but you're not to build it. Your son Solomon will build it. And, 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 and here's the important thing. We always think of Sol the temple as Solomon's temple. It's called Solomon's temple in history. It's not Solomon's temple. It's David's temple. It was his vision, his passion to build that thing. He got most of the supplies for it too. But here's what God, through Nathan the prophet, says to David. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your house, your, that means your people, your descendants, your kingdom, their ability to reign, shall endure or be permanent forever. And then there's a parallel phrase to that, a parallel statement. The parallelism is important because it's emphatic. It speaks of the absolute certainty. And your throne, that is your reign of all, shall be established forever. He's saying, David, you're always going to have, for all eternity, someone be king. Now, David 
had a lot of descendants be king for over 400 years. So the time that David was anointed and became, actually took the throne and until the time of the 587 when the Babylonians destroyed and took Jeru, uh, Jerusalem and Judea, uh, Judah, they all, there was over 400 years some descendant of David was king either in Judah or Israel. But that ain't forever. And the Jewish people understood and the scholars understood it in the times of the Old Testament but also in the interbiblical period that what this had to apply to, what this had to be understood in reference to was someone else. A Messiah who would come. A Messiah who would deliver the people of God. By the time you get to Jesus, it is understood that this passage applies, it only applies to the Messiah. Who the Messiah had to come from the line of David. So that when you come to Matthew 1.1 and you begin the New Testament, it says the story, the beginning of the story of Jesus, the Messiah, Son of David, Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Son of David. He was both through Mary, through the bloodline, and through Joseph, his adopted father, legally the rightful heir to the throne of David and because of God's plan. Now, here's the thing that's so important to see. We need to realize this, that David wasn't just a great king, that David was essential to God's plan for salvation. He wasn't just a great king. He was essential. God had already planned it out, worked it out. Messiah had to come from David. And so... For David to be legally king, he had to have both an authentic and an authoritative appointment. The only person around who had the authority from God and the authenticity by position to make someone a king was Samuel. So Samuel came, anointed him a king. And all the things that Samuel ever did, as great as he was, this was the single most important thing. But it also teaches us a valuable lesson of the Old Testament. All the time I tell you that the Old Testament promises something the New Testament delivers. That the revelation of God progresses. And Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. How he makes himself known. So understand this. The story of the Old Testament is the story of men and women serving God in his mission to get human history to Jesus. The story of the Old Testament. You gotta understand this. Because if you don't understand this, you're gonna miss out on so much and get so many things wrong. The story of the Old Testament is the story of men and women who serve God in his mission to get history of humanity to Jesus. Samuel was a part of that mission. Samuel had a purpose to anoint David, to point to Jesus. Which brings me to this every life has purpose. I was fortunate to go to Trinity University in the fall of 1979. Um, we had, uh, I was entered, you know, my first year, and we had orientation, and uh, you had uh, also an academic advisor. And uh, it was Trinity University, small liberal arts, fantastic university, great academic life. And I went there primarily, though, to play football, but it's still it's good school. And uh, my academic advisor just so happened to be the vice president of academic affairs, Dr. Palmer. That's a little intimidating. So we had a great conversation. He said, what do you think it is in life that, that people want? And as an 18-year-old, I said, I think what people want is to be happy. And for an 18-year-old, that was a good answer. He said, that's a pretty good answer. And I think it was a good answer for an 18-year-old. But as time went on and I began to go into ministry, and I went into ministry in the fall of 1980 as an 18-year-old, I began to understand something else. That happiness is fleeting. It's important, but it's fleeting. But what people really want is to know their life had purpose, meaning, and value. And that value is found in God. And 
God created us in Genesis. God created us to have a relationship with him. And then we messed all that up with our sin. But what did God do? Did he discount us? No. God began from that point forward the story of salvation. In fact, here's the thing. From the moment Adam sinned, from the moment Adam sinned, God, everything God did was to provide a way for rebellious people to have a relationship with him. Everything in the Old Testament, let me repeat this, everything in the Old Testament is God providing a way for us to have a relationship with him. And you come to Samuel, it's exactly what happened. And through all of the craziness of what happened in Judges, God's just working through it all. All of that rebellion, eh, God's going to take care of it. He's going to get right right where he needs to be. And then Samuel, you know, David's going to be king, but there's this detour because, you know, they want another king, so Saul's king, and that messes up, and, David, and then he got right back to David. I think one of the things we've got to understand is our sin and rebellion doesn't mess up God's plans. We have this idea. I remember growing up hearing this all the time. You know, even as a young minister, I hear it. You know, God, God has three wills. He has his perfect will, but when we sin, we messed up his perfect will. So he had his provisional will in sending Jesus, and then after that, he had his, his, his ultimate will. And I'm like, how can God have a perfect will if he gets messed up? How can we mess up the will of God? I mean, Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because your will is your will. And then he prayed in the garden in Gethsemane, Father, not my will be done, but your will, God, your will be done. Nowhere does Scripture say that God has all these different wills. In fact, here's what we need to understand. You and I don't mess up the will of God. God gives us freedom, and in our freedom, we mess up our lives. Yep. And God gives cultures and, and, and people that work in that culture. We mess things up, but God will always get things to where he wants. In fact, understand this. God can allow us to rebel against him and still accomplish his purpose concerning salvation. God can always allow us to rebel against him and still accomplish his purpose concerning salvation. That is the story of Samuel. From the beginning, from Judges, and through the period of Saul, it's just Samuel getting everything, God getting Samuel where he wants him to be. We live on this side of the cross. We always have to look at life on this side of the cross. Jesus, the ultimate final revelation of God. With Samuel and David in mind, trying to understand the purpose of God and all that I've shared with you throughout this series and to this time, the series, you know, the thematic element of the series is that everybody needs somebody to save them. I've said that repeatedly. Here's the thing to understand today. God's purpose is for you to follow Jesus. Whatever else you want to know about God's purpose, it is always for you to follow Jesus. Because if you don't follow Jesus, your life is destroyed for all eternity. God created you to have a relationship with him. You sinned and violated the relationship. How can that be fixed? You can't fix it. I can't fix it. Only Jesus can. Therefore, God's purpose is for you to follow Jesus. And once you follow Jesus, after you follow him, his purpose is for you is to help other people follow Jesus. Because they need the same thing. My connect group, we have, we have a great connect group. But for the last several years, it's like every connect group we have, somebody gets pregnant and has a baby. Is that right? It's everybody. They're in our connect group. I mean, it was always constant. We just had a baby born last week. You know, and I don't, I don't know what, if it's what the food we serve. I don't know what, if I'm inspiring them to something. I have no idea. In fact, I had somebody else from, who used to be a part of our connect group say, we're going to have another baby. We want to try having a baby. I'm like, great. Well, you'll just let me know how that works out, and we'll get together on that, okay? But here's the thing I pray for every single time a child is born. God, help the parents raise this child to one day know you as Lord. That is always my prayer. Now, I'll pray for the health of the mama. And I pray for the health of the baby because you have to do that. <laughs> and I, and it's serious. But I always pray 
from the moment that I know of this child's existence into this world. Help this child one day come to know Christ. Parents, that's your job more than anything else to help your kids come to know Jesus. Whatever you do in life, I mean, think about what you do for a living, where you work, what, your, what you think your purpose is. You know, you teach, you work for the military, you're a banker, whatever. Ultimately, you need to help people come to Jesus. You all have to do that. You see, I said at the beginning of this message, what, what I said to you was that in God, every life has a purpose, that life always involves Jesus. It does. Every life is unique. Your life is unique. My life is unique. And you live your life uniquely. You live your life in a unique way. Not only that, you sin in a unique way. Your sin is all yours. I know everything you've ever done, someone else has done it, but not in your combination. Your life and your sin is uniquely yours. And through all that uniqueness, we all have one common need. It's Jesus. And understand this. If you reject Jesus, you will miss the true purpose of life. You will miss a relationship with God. And you will live in eternal rebellion against him forever. If you reject Jesus. So why would you do that when that is God's purpose for you? We encourage you, and I encourage you to give your life to Christ, to follow him as Lord. There's nothing in your life right now more important because nothing you need to do has more eternal consequences than whether you follow Jesus. So follow him with your life. And if you follow him, who are you helping to follow? What friend, what neighbor, what coworker? What family member, what child, grandchild, parent, grandparent are you helping to follow Jesus? So when we have our invitation here, we'll be here at the front. If you want to come and pray, we'll pray with you. We love to pray with people. If you want to join our church, you can do that. Ladies, if you would like to talk to another woman, I think there'll be a woman up here, uh, up here as well. If you want to give your life to Christ, we want you to give your life to Jesus. I mean, if you want to say, I need to be sure and commit my life to the purpose of helping others follow Jesus, you need to do that as well. We'll help you pray with that, or you can do it where you're at. See, here's the thing. I don't know exactly what you need to do today, but I know this. When you walk out the store, make sure you walk out with one purpose, and that purpose is Jesus. The Father, we come before you thankful that in the midst of all of our sin and all our rebellion and our just casting you aside so often, you never let that deter your plan to do the thing that matters most to help us come to Christ. And you send Jesus into this world so that people might have faith. And then you give us the freedom to trust him. So God, help us to trust Jesus, to follow him with our lives. And to give our life to him completely. And in giving our life to him completely, then to help other people follow him as well. For truly, all that really matters in life, when all is said and done, is whether we have experienced that one true purpose. To follow Jesus Christ as our Lord. Amen. Would you stand? And we'll be here at the front. You come.